You stand on the shore of the ocean watching the tide come in. You sense the call of the sea beckoning to take you further. You step forward little by little, not knowing what to expect, but expecting more. You keep going as the ocean calls, calls you to enter in to deeper waters. And welcome to the Deeper Waters Podcast. I am Nick Peters, your host, seeking to bring you the very best in Christian scholarship and apologetics. And today is no exception. Today, we're going to be talking about slavery. Yes, I, I know I'm sure so many of you are just so happy to hear that we're talking about that topic because it's just a, such a great feel-good topic to have. But yeah. it's one we need to address. And in order to do that, I've decided to bring on an expert in the field, especially in Old Testament slavery. He's a, a contributor to the book Behind the Scenes of the Old Testament, where he wrote the chapter on slavery. And I thought, I got to get this guy on my show to talk about this topic because it keeps coming up. Viewing online debates and such. I mean, heck, I, I debated Dan Barker last month, and I, if I'm remembering correctly, I'm pretty sure he mentioned slavery in there sometimes. If not, I know he's said some things about it. So uh, the guy I brought on is Dr. Richard Averbeck. He grew up on a dairy farm in Wisconsin and came to know the Lord when he was 18 years at the University of Wisconsin River Falls. About two years later, in January 72, he transferred to Calvary Bible College in Kansas City, where he began his academic study of the Bible, theology, and biblical languages, Greek and Hebrew. It was there that he met his wife, Melinda. After his graduation from college in 1974, Richard and Melinda were married and moved to Grace Theological Seminary in Winona Lake, Indiana. In 1977, he completed a Master of Divinity program at the seminary. They moved to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, to pursue the Doctor of Philosophy program in Ancient Near Eastern Studies and Biblical Hebrew at the Dropsy College for Hebrew and Cognate Learning, now known as the Anberg Research Institute of the University of Pennsylvania. In 1980, Richard completed his class worked for a PhD degree and they moved back to Grace Theological Seminary where he took a position as a professor of Old Testament studies and taught until 1990. In that time, Richard and Melinda became the parents of two boys, Nathan and Micah. They now have two grandsons, Jacob, 17, and Levi, four and a half. He finished his dissertation on the Gudea Cylinders, a long Sumerian temple building hymn from about 2100 BC and received a PhD degree from Dropsy in 1987. From 87 to 89, while continuing to teach full-time in Old Testament studies at Grace Theological Seminary, he engaged in the study of biblical counseling under his colleague at the seminary, Dr. Lawrence J. Crabb, Jr. He received a Master of Arts in Biblical Counseling in 89 and is presently a licensed professional counselor in the state of Wisconsin. From 90 to 94, Richard taught full-time at Dallas Theological Seminary in the fields of Old Testament studies and biblical counseling and carried on a part-time private counseling practice. In 94, the Averbecks moved to Pleasant Prairie, Wisconsin, for Richard to take up his present ministry as a full-time professor in the Old Testament and Semitic Languages Department at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Deerfield, Illinois. In 2010, he also took on the directorship of a Ph.D. program in theology studies at TEDS. He was a director of a spiritual formation forum for about 10 years from 97 to 2007. 
major concern of reformers for system development of spirituality and spiritual formation ministries in evangelical Christian institutions such as seminaries and graduate schools, colleges, international ministries, campus ministry groups on secular campuses, and church denominations as well as individual local churches. He continues to preach, teach, and publish in the field of spiritual formation. He's published numerous articles in the fields of ancient Near Eastern studies, especially Sumer and Sumerian literature of relationship between the ancient Near Eastern studies and the Old Testament, Old Testament law, especially ritual law and priestly theology of the Old Testament, Leviticus, the tabernacle, the sacrificial system, etc. The latter in Walter L. Wells' Dictionary of Biblical Theology, William Van Gemeren's New International Direct Dictionary of Old Testament Theology and Exegesis, and David W. Baker's and T. Desmond's Dictionary of the Old Testament Pentateuch. He was the chair of the Biblical Law section of the Society of Biblical Literature from 2004 to 10, and serves on several other professional society committees. Richard also co-edited and contributed to Crossing Boundaries and Linking Horizons, studies in honor of Michael C. S. Durer on his 80th birthday. Bethesda, Maryland, CDL Press, 97. He was the main editor and contributor to Life and Culture in the Ancient Near East, and was published on the Judea, Serendoros, and Sumerian Creation Text in the Context of Scripture, Volume 2 and 4, that are forthcoming, and has published numerous other articles in these fields. In recent years, he became engaged in a renewed scholarly discussion about the early chapters of Genesis. He was one of the five main speakers of the Bryan Institute Symposium on Reading Genesis 1-2, through September 29th through October 1st, 2011. Chattanooga, Tennessee, along with Todd Beer, C. John Collins, Trimper Longman III, and John Wharton. My advocate the last two have been on our show before. Richard's chapter is entitled A Literary Day, Intertextual and Contextual Reading of Genesis 1 and 2, and Five Views on Genesis 1 and 2, Editor Daryl Charles. He is also the author of The Three Daughters of Baal and Transformation of Chaos Kampf in the early chapters of Genesis, in Chaos Kampf in the Bible and the Ancient Near East. Most recently, he has been appointed a co-director of Evangelical Theological Theology and the Doctrine of Creation Project, funded by the Templeton Research Trust through the Henry Center for Theological Understanding at TEDS. Richard is currently committed to several book writing projects, including A Priestly Theology of the Old Testament, The Old Testament Law of the Christian, Arrest for the People of God, Reading the Old Testament for the Christian Life, and Commentaries on the Books of Leviticus, and the Evangelical Exegetical Commentary forthcoming from Logos Research Systems, and Numbers in the Biblical Theology of the Christian Proclamation, Commentary series forthcoming from Brandon and Homan. That is a mouthful, but Dr. Everbeck, <laughs> thank you for taking your time to come on our show. Sure. Oh, now I'm going to let you do some talking. If my audience doesn't really know who you are, how did you get to be doing what you're doing? Uh, well, uh, I came to know the Lord in college, and I learned about a few things early on about the Old Testament in. Hebrew and the New Testament in Greek, and so I assumed Christians learn Greek and Hebrew. So I went and studied that, and one thing led to the other, and I kept on going. And I, my goal has been for a long time to help the church with the Old Testament and to uh, uh, lead them to study the Old Testament and use it as good foundations for their study of what Christ has done for us. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um. So let's uh, start by leaping into this topic here. Now, um, let's start with, this could seem a bit pointed, but here in America, many of us know about our history 
in what's known here myself as the War of Northern Aggression. And slavery played a very big part in that. Now, that slavery was a wicked and horrible system, wasn't it? Yes. Yes. But yet there was slavery in the Bible, and that's supposed to be part of the word of God and such. Uh, I mean, are, are we really saying God would endorse a system like that? Well, there, in the Bible and, in fact, in the ancient world, ancient Near Eastern world uh, that I have studied, uh, the kind of slavery that we're talking about is not the kind of slavery we're talking about when we use the term in this country, what people usually think of. There was no wholesale going to another continent and stealing people and bringing them for labor and breeding them to produce more labor, that kind of thing. Um, that just was not what slavery was about in the ancient world, and especially uh, in the Bible. In fact, in the Bible, God delivered Israelites uh, from slavery uh, in Egypt and trained them uh, not to have that kind of slavery in their world. Yeah, but, you know, it's it's still slavery. I mean, isn't that what's really going on? And people look at it and say that we all know today that it's wrong to own another human being. So why do we do that then? In the Bible, there's two different kinds of slavery. There's what we call debt slavery. And then there's what you're referring to, which is chattel slavery. And in that case, um, uh, well, 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 debt slavery is to work one's way out of debt. Okay? That's what, it's, what it refers to. And it's a periodic thing. Whereas chattel slavery is from refugees from war and things like that in the ancient Near East. And there's been a lot of work done on this, both in the ancient Near Eastern world and in the Bible. And uh, chattel slavery is a part of the world, and it has a lot to do with uh, refugees of war and uh, people that become destitute and various ways like that. But it's not a racial kind of thing or anything like that in, in the Bible. Do not misunderstand. In slavery, even in the Bible, there's the opportunity for brutality and the kinds of things that that we don't want to see. And the Bible teaches against that, but does not eliminate the concept of having slaves. In fact, in some way, in some ways, slavery was a way to manage the problems of people falling into destitution in the Bible. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what you're saying, Ben, is if we're comparing civil war slavery and slavery that took place in the time of the ancient Near East, we're really comparing apples and oranges to each other? Yes. Yes, they're, they're very different. Uh, and uh, the idea of slavery in the Bible uh, is one that is not endorsed as a as an ongoing kind of thing, what it is, is a uh, way of dealing with the realities of life that could happen in the ancient world, so that if 
it's kind of like one of the ways to compare some of it, the debt slavery is special, is kind of like our bankruptcy type of situation, where if somebody got into that situation, they didn't have bankruptcy, but they had debt slavery. And mm -hmm. through that institution, they could go under a master for a period of time and pay off the debt and then go out free again from that slavery. Yeah. Something I've told people about this before is it's too easy to read our modern culture into a text. And it's kind of, if you wanted to live and work and provide for your family, well, sorry, but you couldn't just go out and get a job at Walmart or 7-Eleven back then. You had to work for someone else. There were no other options for there. Yeah, well, they, there's different levels of what how that was handled in society. And mm -hmm. there was a lot, even in certain chapters like Leviticus 25 in the Bible, mm -hmm. there's a lot said about caring for your neighbor and so on, trying to prevent them from falling into mm -hmm. situations of destitution. But uh, sometimes the it just couldn't be stopped. And then they had this kind of last stop place where people could be provided for while they worked for someone else. Mm-hmm. So what other ways, though, could you have provided for yourself in the meantime? Well, the families in ancient Israel had landed estates. Uh, they had the tribal allotments, and then underneath that, the clans and the families within the clans. And they had different uh, plots of land and so on that they would use. And it was very much an agrarian society. So what what they had was this landed estate kind of situation. But if someone um, had uh, some kind of disaster or catastrophe, there was a way to deal with that uh, by uh, dealing with it through going under someone who was in a good condition financially and therefore making it through that period of time. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> now. You did speak about Leviticus 25 and how we're supposed to be, how the Jews were supposed to take care of their neighbors and such. Well, a lot of people say, yeah, well, that neighbor just meant a fellow Jew. You could mistreat the people on the outside all you wanted to. In fact, that, those are people that believe the very passage says you're supposed to buy your slaves from them. So it's okay. It, so maybe you could get some good treatment if you were a Jew, but if you weren't a Jew, you didn't get good treatment. Well, one of the one of the ways of talking about that, it is true that they could. Part of the problem was that there were sometimes displaced people from other areas of the region that would come into Israel and would live in there as sojourners or strangers in the land. Now, there's a lot of references in the law and throughout the Bible to caring for the sojourner and the stranger. Mm -hmm. We we have the one in kind of a principle laid out of this in Leviticus 19, where in verse 18, you have this well-known second great commandment, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, I am the Lord. Mm -hmm. Later on in the same chapter, in verses 33 uh, uh, and 34, it reads, when a stranger resides with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. A stranger resides with you, you shall be to you as a native among you. You shall love him as yourself, using the same expression. For you were aliens in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. 
since they had been treated that way in Egypt, and that was uh, oppressive. They were not to treat even foreigners in their land that way. And so it uses the same expression for loving your neighbor as yourself, for you shall love your, the alien as yourself in that chapter. The point is, that was the general principle, of course, with people and with the corruption of people. There were always ways in which people worked it around so that they could become oppressive and, and overpower others. And that's always a problem with people in one way or another, in one culture or another. But this was the kind of thing that God exactly did not want and that he expressly stated he did not want in ancient Israel. Mm -hmm. uh, see, I've also been told before that when it comes to looking at the uh, people from the other lands that they were allowed to buy slaves from, that in the ancient world, people were very directly connected with their homelands and such. Uh -huh. And so if you were buying someone from someone else, odds are this was someone who did not have their own land that they could go to and such. They were probably exiles and such and would need a place to stay. Yes, this is an important part of it. And this is, as you've pointed out, shows up in Leviticus 25. After it talks about debt slavery, it goes on and talks about that um, as for your male and female slaves whom you may have, you may acquire male and female slaves from the pagan nations that are around you. And so it goes on and talks about that in terms of how to... Um, because what happens, sometimes people flee from the homeland for one way or another, or there's war, and there's refugees that are left, and they will perish unless they are taken in. But they didn't have landed area in Israel, so the only way to maintain them was to have them in your own household. And slavery in the Bible was an, was an ancient Near Eastern household type of situations. Again, now that's not to mean that there couldn't be uh, difficulties and there couldn't be brutality. But that was not what was intended uh, in the ancient Israelite system, was intended to be a land that would protect even chattel slaves, slaves that were owned so that they couldn't be abused. Okay. And that doesn't, aren't slaves kind of like included as property in the Ten Commandments as well? I mean, a lot of people look and say, isn't it dehumanizing to see a slave as property? Yes, I think that that one of the things that's, that's really important there is that in that discussion about slaves in the Ten Commandments, uh, it talks about uh, six days you shall labor and do all your work in Exodus 20. Seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. Shall not do any work. You or your son or your slave, daughter, your male or female slave, or your cattle, or your sojourner who stays with you. So there's different categories there. But the point is that even the slaves were to be granted the rest of the Sabbath uh, so that they couldn't be abused in that way and not given this rest that they need. And so that's in that context, yes, it does bring up whatever status of person, even animals in that context, were to be treated uh, with this rest. It cannot be 
uh, taken away from them. Yeah, but they are still treated as property, though, and said to be property. So does that not dehumanize a slave, make them less than a person? Well, they didn't think of that as making them less than a person. They thought of it as a particular status of a person uh, economically. A lot of, I think there's a misunderstanding mm -hmm. to some degree of the law in this regard. The law has a lot of important ideals in it, but it is a very realistic law mm. for how to live in the ancient Near Eastern mm -hmm. cultural context in their world for the ancient Israelites. And so what we have in Exodus 20, for example, in the uh, Ten Commandments, yes, it allows for this slavery and in fact regulates it. But the fact of the matter is that it wasn't meant to think of them as dehumanized. It was a reality. In fact, they would, for example, debt slaves would retain their connection to their families that were not in slavery. And so it's not like they lost the connections of being human and being in their families. But unfortunately, if you were a refugee in another country and were brought into slavery, it was because you had lost your families uh, through the war. Uh, situations or other kinds of catastrophes. And so this was a way to handle all of that. And the reality is, uh, in the farming context, the agrarian context, they needed the labor, and they did. They did actually have permanent slaves as well as debt slaves. And the idea was they provided labor, and the, the master was to provide for them. But again, there's no doubt that it could become a brutal system. It was never intended to be, but it could become that. And God simply regulated, trying to create a situation where it wasn't brutal. Yeah, I'd like to get back to the thing about families and such. Uh, I think we could discuss a little bit about something you said about the way the law was, that it was realistic and such. And we have a huge misunderstanding. I think when a lot of our modern-day skeptics and atheists read the text, they think that the law is meant to be a way to provide for utopia and the perfect society here on earth and they can say so a system with slavery is the best a perfect god could do well in their context people had to make a living somehow mm -hmm. they had to survive and part of the problem is sometimes the conditions on which they were trying to survive and provide for themselves and from their families, went bad. Mm -hmm. So then how do you capture that so those people do not actually perish? Mm -hmm. In this situation, what they did was they had a system that was in place that they could use. That slavery was mm -hmm. one of those systems. Or for foreigners and so on, could be chattel slavery because they didn't have any land to go back to anyway. But the point is that in this situation, they were treated as people who could make their way through this system. Mm -hmm. They didn't have a welfare system, for example. They had this system, and this system was what they used within the culture. God managed it. God used it. But he didn't set any, any imprimatur on it as a system uh, that culturally— 
cultures all over the world are very different. But the point here is that in this culture, this was a way to manage some of these problems of survival that people had. And it could be a good system, but it could also turn brutal in light of the character of people who would misuse their power and so on. And that's where the problems come in, in slavery. And uh, a lot of times, I mean, the, the situation is such that when slavery happened, it happened because people had to survive. Mm-hmm. Now, when we're talking about a question about if this was a perfect society, not a perfect law, as we're meant to produce utopia, I think as Christians we can say there are some things that inherently we realize are kind of stipulations given in the law because it wasn't meant to be a perfect society. And one such example comes to my mind immediately is divorce. Because mm-hmm. when Jesus is questioned in the New Testament about the grounds for divorce and such, he tells them, Moses granted you divorce because your your hearts were hard. As if God's kind of saying, yeah, you know, this isn't the ideal, but if you're going to have this system where we're going to at least regulate it so it doesn't get out of hand. Yeah, I think there's, there's, that, that's an important principle that God is dealing with something that he knows these are rebellious people in the first place mm-hmm. when he brings them out of Egypt and so on. He knows there are going to be struggle. He is simply regulating it so that he can manage the situation. And then it true, it's, it was never going to be a utopian society, not with fallen people living in a fallen world. But he was going to manage it to make it a place that was a, a picture of the kind of thing you could do that would be good in the midst of all the corruption. I know this is a huge debate that Christian scholars have amongst themselves and such. And I say this as someone who's just recently read John Walton's Lost World of the Torah here, but how should we as Christians view the law? Well, I think we should view it as a way of managing people under God in the world in which they were living. And the world in which they were living mm-hmm. was not ideal. Mm-hmm. And he was being realistic with the ideals that he brings to it. Mm-hmm. Okay? There's ideals in the law, but those ideals have to be managed in a real-world situation that could actually work. And God was being realistic with mm-hmm. that. So I think that's very, uh, very important. And uh, the law is uh, a good law. But it was never intended to be imposed across other culture and across uh, different uh, cultural contexts. It was meant to manage people in a particular situation mm-hmm. in the ancient Near Eastern world in his covenant relationship with them. Could we say, kind of the way Paul does in Galatians 3 and some and 4, that the law is kind of seen to be a stepping stone, as it were, to get them from where they are to where God wants them to be, and he never intended for the law to just stay and be something that would be forever unalterable and such. Yes, in fact, he himself changed the law, even within the law, from the time they were at Sinai to the time they went for Moab 40 years later, 
there were changes in the law because then they were going to be in the land, not traveling through the wilderness around the tabernacle. So there's actually adjustments that are made within the law itself to new situations. Can you give some examples of those? So, for example, if someone was going to eat meat while they were in the wilderness, if they were going to slaughter an animal, have it for dinner, uh, they would have to bring that animal to the tabernacle to make sure they sacrificed it to the Lord. Bud would go on the altar there, and they would they would they would then take this peace offering, and it would be they they could have it for a banquet or for dinner. Whereas when they went into the land and were going to be spread out in the land forty years later, what happened was. God instituted a new situation in which if they're going to make sacrifices, they need to come to the central place. After there's rest in the land, they could come to the central place to sacrifice. But they couldn't if they were just going to have uh, meat for dinner one evening. Mm -hmm. They could not travel 30 miles that day and back to slaughter it at the temple at the central place. So God said you can now have what we call profane slaughter. This is Deuteronomy 12, in which you can slaughter the animal as if it's wild game. And as wild game, then uh, you make sure you pour out the blood on the ground and cover it with dirt Mm -hmm. and so on. And then you can eat the meat. You don't eat the blood because the blood represents the life of the animal and life only goes to God. Mm -hmm. So the point is that the law was changed so that you could do that kind of slaughter for meat, uh, but it had to be changed because now they were going to be spread out in the land rather than everybody around the tabernacle in the wilderness. Mm-hmm. Let's get back to that families thing you were talking about. Because when you start reading Exodus 21, you see the account, if you buy a Hebrew servant, he serves you for six years, and the seventh he goes free without paying anything. If he comes alone... He's to go free alone. But if he has a wife and he comes, she's to go with him. But now, on the other hand, if a master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the woman and her child, her children, shall belong to her master, and only the man shall go free. Now, I know there are a lot of skeptics of the Bible and such go up there and say, isn't that horrible? Separating families because of this system. What's going on? Well, in that context, what's happening is the the Hebrew slave comes in alone, and he gets a wife that the master gives him while he's in slavery. Then mm-hmm. his six years are up, so he's going to go out free. But in the meantime, he in, normally in ancient Israel, in order to gain a wife, you would pay a bride price. There's many examples of that in the Bible. Mm-hmm. And uh, he hasn't paid the bride price. So he cannot just take the wife and the children with him because they actually are servants of this master. So he has to either stay in slavery, which the next verses talk about, okay, and retain his family, or he could go out of slavery and then redeem them out of slavery. Well, why is it that the master just can be, you know, be nice and that the wife and children go to be with their husband and father. I mean, what's the big deal about the bride price? Well, the bride price, uh, these people were of economic value, and the Bible has a lot to do, the law has a lot to do with economic equity. And in this context, the master has this investment in the wife and the children. 
uh, and the man has paid off his debt, but they're not free to go out with him because they haven't, or he has given them to to the master, um, to the to the slave. He's given him a a wife, and what happens is they've had children during that time he's in slavery, so he could then find a situation in which he was actually doing well with his master, a family, and the whole bit. And he could be, then it says in the next verses, he can say, I love my master, my wife, and my children. I will know God with us as a free man. And he wants to retain his family in relationship to that master. And the master shall bring him to God, and he makes him into a permanent slave because he actually is going to have a good life with that master from the point of view of the slave himself. Now, that's the point of this. The point is he's become part of the household of this master, and he can maintain being in that household by just staying permanently, raising his family within that. One of the things that I learned, you mentioned in my bio that that I grew up on a farm in Wisconsin, dairy farm. One of the things that I learned is that some people can manage farms and land and do well with it and other people are just not good managers and they will end up losing the farm and we had at one time when i was growing up we had like a hundred farms going out of business in wisconsin every week and the point is that when things get hard sometimes uh it's better just to stay in a situation that is well founded and so on have a good manager and apparently, this man, if he found this to be a good situation, could do this and become permanently part of this man's household as one who is running the farm with the master. Mm. And I also think part of it is we can again read our modern context into the text, where in many cases our ideas of marriage include a strong emotional commitment as well based on love and things of that sort but in the ancient world that wasn't necessarily so i don't think marriages weren't formed based on love so much as they were based on the need for survival am i right with that yes that's true and there's another uh part to that i think that maybe it helps me i think we have a problem uh sometimes in our world with what I would call cultural superiority. And what I mean by that is we would think, well, this looks like an awful system. Uh, Look at how badly you have with even possibility of separating families and so on. Mm -hmm. Well, part of the, turn turn this around the other way and look at how an ancient Israelite, if he came into our culture, how he'd view our culture. He, He would, for example, he would be appalled at the notion that parents do not find a spouse for their child. Mm-hmm. How do you expect this to work, they said. And in fact, some days, sometimes today, it doesn't work mm-hmm. because people cannot find a spouse. One of the things that they would think is, you send your kids out there into the world, work world, without being married. What in the world do you think is going to happen out there? Mm-hmm. And so they would look at this and they would say, you just don't care about your kids at all, do you? Right. You, you just don't give a rip about them. And their view of our culture could have the same reactions 
as what we sometimes read into their culture. But when they're living within this culture, this could be a system in which all sorts of different kinds of things could be worked out in an equitable way. Everybody is protected. The slave, the wife of the slave, the master of the slave, everybody is protected in different ways that are important to them. Yeah, it's amazing me about how radically different the cultures are. For instance, when I got married, I was a couple of months shy of turning 30 years old. Yeah. And the ancient world, if I'd lived there, I'd probably already have three and four kids at that point. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yep. So it's it's a different kind of a situation, and we need to be careful about our own attitudes of cultural superiority. That does not condone in any way the brutality that could show up in slavery and that we are so familiar with in the history of this country where we live here in the United States. It's, it's, it's had so much bad effect on our ongoing history and continues to. But the point that I'm saying is that was not the kind of slavery that was going on in ancient Israel and even in the larger ancient Near Eastern world. Whole monographs and whole collections of essays have been written by scholars who've studied the text and studied the world. And they show, yes, there could be brutality, but that was not the intent. It was a means of managing people in a situation of survival. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think we have a lot of problems. There's so many people today who seem to think there's no need to really give any scholarly study whatsoever to the situation. They just go on their own, you know, uh, more self-righteousness and such. And think that, that clinches everything. Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a serious problem, and it has to be dealt with in dealing with the law, because the law is managing a people within a certain certain kind of sociocultural context. Mm-hmm. It's not the same as ours, and so we could look at it as if it's unjust. When really, within that situation, the whole point of it was to move it as close to justice as possible that you could have in a fallen human situation in the world. Yeah, I, I think we could look at something like the, the analogy I'll just use of marriage when we talk about if they came here and saw a crisis with teen pregnancies, they'd probably say, what do you expect? These kids are 20 years old. You're not letting them be married by now. What do you think That's is going to happen? Yeah, no, it's it's a, and, 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 and the family structure is broken down, whereas in that world, the family structure even stayed in intact even if somebody went into uh, debt slavery or something like that, they kept it intact. Now, again, with chattel slaves, a lot of those people in in chattel slavery had no family to stay in contact with because of the situation out of which they came, mm-hmm. whether they fled from another place to Israel or whether they were brought to Israel out of refugee situations due to war. Yes. Okay, well— about how they uh, kept their families together. What about the very next things talking about in Exodus 21? If a man sells his daughter as a servant, she's not to go free as male servants do and such. If she does not please the master or select her for himself, he must let her be redeemed. He has no right to sell her to foreigners because he has broken faith with her. 
If he selects her for his son, he must grant her rights of a daughter. If he marries another woman, he must not deprive the first one of her food, clothing, and marital rights. If he does not provide her these three things, she is to go free about any payment of money. Now, someone Remus could look and say, well, it doesn't look like this woman has a whole lot of freedom at all, and what kind of man would sell his own daughter? Yeah, this was a thing. We find this in various uh, other law codes in the ancient Near East, like the Code of Hammurabi and other places like that, that we could point to. One of the things that happened within the family situation was that if the family went into serious debt, they could sell someone in the family into debt slavery, and then they would go through the debt slavery process. In this case, what we have is a daughter. But you'll notice that in this context, the reason she does not go out free as the male slaves is because she's designated to the master or to the master's son, apparently meaning that she is going to be a wife of the master or a wife of the master's son. That's why at the end of verse 9, it talks about uh, if he designated for son, he shall deal with her according to the custom of daughters. She actually becomes like a daughter in the family. The point is that in this context, uh, if a man is having trouble financially and is in uh, uh, a dire situation, he could help the family by selling his daughter to a master who was well off, who could then take her into his family and she could be his wife. This was a way for the one who would become the master of this woman, uh, he would be paying the bride price by uh, granting uh, forgiveness for the debt that the family owed. And in the meantime, the father would be getting a husband for his daughter, whether the master or the master's son. The point is that in this context, she can't go out free because now this is actually a solidified marriage with a bride price having been paid. And the result is they're not going to break that up unless the master decides that he doesn't want to go through with it. And in that case, he has, to, he has to make sure she's fully provided for. He has to treat her still like a daughter and as a wife to the son or himself. And if he's not willing to do that, he has to let her go back to her family. So he cannot sell her away to anyone else as a slave or anything like that. That's the point that he makes there. He can't sell her to a foreign people. He's got to keep her in contact with her family. She's protected by this ongoing contact with the family in such a way that he can't abuse the situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I think people don't realize that this was also a way of providing for both families, and both families would also form an alliance in the situation, wouldn't they? Yes, that's the... A big part of the point, and it's it's a legal statement. It's not meant to cover cover everything that's going on in the sociology of the situation, mm-hmm. but it is giving us how you handle something legally. But you got to understand that there's a whole bunch going on in the context that this is meant to help with. It's meant to handle, mm-hmm. and I think that's an important part of the discussion as well. In this case, this woman, this daughter, is not going just into slavery. She's going into marriage. And in that context, she has to be provided for properly as a wife. Mm -hmm. And this is the reality of the situation. And if 
things turn bad. She can't be mishandled. She's got to be uh, given back to the family. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I really think it does make things seem very different. I mean, we, we still like this and say, you know, this isn't the idea or circumstances and things like that. But it does put into a little bit more understanding about what reality was in that world. Yes, that's that's I think what's what the law is meant to do. It can't handle everything. It can law can only do certain things. the The real issue is the ethos of the law was intended to prevent abuse of people uh, in Israel. Israelites can't be brought into slavery for any kind of permanent chattel slavery or anything mm-hmm. because they had just been delivered from slavery by the Lord out of Egypt. Mm-hmm. So that's that's why Exodus 21 is the beginning of what we call the Book of the Covenant, where this slave law is, that slave law. And uh, there's no other law code in the ancient Near East that begins with slave law. The reason this one begins that way is because it's preventing the very kind of thing that they just came out of. You can't do that to one another mm-hmm. in Israel as Israelites. And so there's this ethos that's in it, but it's not trying to fill in everything because it's being given to people who knew what was going on in the sociology, the way the culture worked. And so we have to fill that in by our our work at understanding the cultural context, much of which is displayed in various places in the Bible itself. But some of it we can also get reinforced by work from the ancient Near Eastern world. So what was going on in Egypt, what was so bad for them was really, because there had to be Egyptian slaves of others, Egyptians in Egypt, because every society had slavery back then. Yes. What was really going so bad was rather the exploitation of Israel, wasn't it? Yes, they they were oppressed, and it talks about that very explicitly, that, that they were oppressed in Egypt, and they must not do that in their own culture. And that would include not just for them, but it would also include foreigners as well. Yeah, in fact, like uh, like we pointed out in Exodus, uh, Leviticus 19, the love your neighbor as yourself is also applied to love to love their stranger as yourself. And so there's these categories of thinking were intentionally put into the law so that the ethos of things as they were done in the culture could be worked in that direction. Mm-hmm. Hey, well, there's something else that also shows up later on in Exodus 21. So anyone who beats their male or female slave of a rod must be punished if a slave dies as a direct result. But they are not to be punished if a slave recovers after a day or two, since the slave is their property. Now, there are some people who are like this. Well, we have a lot of problems. But first off, the slave is property of a person. And second, you're allowed to beat your slave, and if they recover after a day or two, you don't get punished, you're scot-free. What's going on with that? Yeah, this is a, a question. First, we're not sure all the time whether this is referring to dead slaves or to chattel slaves or to both. It's just not made clear through the whole thing. But mm-hmm. in any case, whatever the case there might be, the point of it is they they could use coercion to cause slaves to work. 
mm -hmm. uh, they weren't allowed to to um, do it in such a way that they would end up dying from the coercion. And that's the point that the text is making. In other words, these people, these slaves, they don't own the land. They have no personal investment in it or anything. And so coercion was part of the whole slavery institution, actually throughout, throughout all of history, even up today where there is slavery. So the, so the point is that the nature of the situation was that these people were made to work, and if they didn't work, they had to be forced to work. It wasn't like you could just say today, like in a business situation, okay, you're fired. <laughs> that, yeah. that just wasn't the way it worked. Uh, they were in that household, and they had to be handled as being in that household, but they also had to be made to work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because uh, I tell people, for instance, where you at V's were, day wage earners, if they didn't work, their, their whole family would starve at that yeah. point. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, the, the very nature of the situation is that these are not just day laborers. And uh, if they were day laborers and they didn't work, they just wouldn't get paid. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but, uh, but and, and of course, that could lead to great catastrophe, too. But the point here is that in this context, these were not just day laborers. These were people that belonged to the household and needed to work in order to provide for that household in that situation. The result is that things could get out of hand. If they got out of hand, mm -hmm. then there was punishment to the master. So why is it that the master is kind of given the benefit of a doubt if a slave recovers in a day or two? Well, I, th I think that the reason is because he actually is the master and he needs to be sure that his people under him in the household slavery context, mm -hmm. they would need to be made to work. And uh, how do you get them to work? Well, some of them just won't unless they're forced to work. And that's the problem, I think. It's a kind of a catch situation in which how do you manage this? Well, you can't just go ahead and brutally beat your servant in such a way that they don't survive. You can't do anything like that. You can make them work, but you cannot be brutal. Mm -hmm. I think part of the problem also that many of us don't realize when looking at this kind of society is, you know, I idea that if you were in that position and you were a slave owner, as it were, you were a wealthy person and you needed people to work for you to keep your own wealth going and you wanted to make sure you had a good relationship with the people and you were held in high honor and esteem. And if word gets out that you severely mistreat the people who work under you, where, guess what, people aren't going to want to work under you. Yeah, that was part of the whole thing. And, you know, one of the issues in ancient Israel is, is that people were, were the core to the Israelite covenant was that God was to be pleased and honored by what you did and how you handled others. You know, the, you know, love God and love your neighbor. And uh, this was the idea. But again, in a situation where you have people, you have some people of power, quite frankly, who are going to abuse that power. Mm 
-hmm. And so you have to put limits on that so that they cannot abuse it in these kinds of ways. And unfortunately, uh, yes, some people didn't care about that uh, reputation uh, and so on. But the fact of the matter is, you didn't want to have that kind of reputation in ancient Israel. Mm -hmm. And when we talk about the slave being treated as property, like one of the things to keep in mind with this as well is that in property, I don't think it meant direct ownership of a person as it was back then. What would more likely be in mind, I think, was that the Israelites were said to be owners of the land in a certain sense, but Yahweh was really the only one who had ownership of the land. The, the Israelites were just tenants who were keeping the land for Yahweh, tending his garden, as it were. So they were entitled to the labor that the land produced. And I think the same thing is going on with slavery, that it's not the person that's the owner has rights to so much as the labor that the person produces. Yes, that's that's really what it's about. It is about the labor that was needed to manage the uh, the land and um, the cattle and all that that was part of the economy. Mm -hmm. So how how does this kind of compare though when we if you were doing a comparative analysis like you kind of suggested earlier with some of the mat culture being brought to our culture? What would they think, probably, about our modern workforce today? Well, I, th I think that one of the things that they would be concerned about is the, the lack of uh, connectedness, the lack of loyalty mm -hmm. in the situation. Uh, in their world, this was family loyalty was part of it, both to the original family of the person who was in slavery, but also to the family of the master. There was this household concept. Uh, today, the level of loyalty is very low uh, in work places in many contexts. Mm -hmm. And uh, they would say, boy, there's, you've got no security here. Uh, they would be, that would not feel like a secure culture to them mm -hmm. uh, at all, especially with the disintegration of family context and the lack of household context in the work world. Is it kind of thing because, for instance, if you lose your job, where, geez, you just go out and you find the next person and you work for them, you don't care about the person or the company you work with so much. It's just you work for them, they provide things for you, so you have to go with them. But there's not, but like you said, there's no real loyalty involved with it. Yeah, the, the connectedness, the relational nature of the situation um, isn't uh, what they would have assumed in the ancient Near Eastern world or how it worked in the ancient Near Eastern world, even economically. It was all based around in households were places not just where you resided, they were places where you were productive. Mm -hmm. And uh, that then transferred in, into all sorts of different levels, even palace households and temple households, and so on. So this was across the culture. And the problem today is it's, is it's so disintegrated. There's not any kind of real ownership of the relationship and of the bond. Yeah. 
I, I, I tell people sounds one of the biggest things you need to understand in understanding the ancient world is the role honor and shame played for them. And it's a huge problem I think we have in our churches and Bible studies today, but we seem to know nothing about honor and shame in the ancient world. Yeah, that is a uh, that was a real issue, and you could be to to be in like a debt slave situation was not a shame situation. You could be very honorable, and so on in that context, and everybody knew that because you remain connected to the household. It's all very much a part of the economics of the situation. The we 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 don't understand. How important that is for uh, the nature of how they thought about things in the ancient world of ancient Israel. That this honor and shame was was something that they they knew was a powerful thing. You had to manage it. You had to make sure that people felt treated in a way that didn't uh, take away those very kinds of senses of things for the people in that cultural context. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think that we just so easily lose sight and that kind of thing. One of the things along with that also is that we place the good of an individual above all. They place the good of a community above all. Yeah, there's a lot of um, difference there uh, in the cultures. They... They place the good of the community, but the community, including caring for the individuals, it wasn't like they didn't care about the individual. They did care about the individual, but the individual was incorporated into a collective that was very important for the own individual and their identity. And they saw themselves in that context. And in our context, we don't have the same kind of basic. Uh, foundation and uh, in the individualism results in kind of a, a a separation, a kind of situation in which you don't have the kind of connectedness that is meant that we're meant to have as people in this world. Mm-hmm. Well, I'd like to remind everyone at this point that uh, you're listening to the Deeper Waters podcast. You got Richard Averbeck as our guest. We're gonna meet, we're talking about slavery in the ancient world. Thus, if you're here next week, I'm still working on that because we had a cancellation just recently, so I'm working on that. I do have shows set up for Autism Awareness Month later on this month. Um, I'll go ahead and tell people what's going to happen. On the 20th, I'm going to have a friend of mine come on here, and he's going to interview me for Autism Awareness seeing as I'm on the spectrum as well, and talk about, from my perspectives, something that you all probably haven't got to hear before so much. So, on the 20th, I'm going to be one of the hot seat having a guest come on to do an interview for me. So that's coming up, but next week, we're still working out. I've got an idea in mind, but I'm not promising anything. God, check and make sure it's all good first, and such. Now, let's get back to, a little bit also to this whole thing about someone selling their daughter and such. Um, does that not get us into the danger of, say, sex slavery, for instance? Well, in this context, uh, 
we need to remember that that's not what this is talking about. It's not even even opening up to that. And the reason I say that is because the it's clear within the regulation itself that the daughter stays connected to the original family. Mm-hmm. She cannot be abused without going back to the family, so on and so forth. Whereas sex slavery is removing uh, the child from the family and getting her out in a completely vulnerable situation. This woman is not completely vulnerable. Mm-hmm. She's in a protected situation in which she she certain things have to be met with or she she ends up going back to the family from which she came. How were slaves really treated in the households back then? Because something I gather is that in many ways they were like members of a family. Yeah, that was one of the things that we've talked about some in terms of the whole household nature of the thing. And there's been a lot of work done within the last 20, 20 years that shows that this was largely a household context. Now, in this kind of a situation, um, the person didn't lose that contact. Uh, And it was, in fact, part of what they did as part of the family to be actually put into this situation, whether it's a male or as a female, in order to manage the family, in order to help with the family. And all the things associated with marriage, and things like that are part of working this out in the situation in the different kinds of situations that might arise within the in the cultural context. Yeah. So I mean, for instance, back when Hurricane I, I'm sorry, I'm having a memory black, I can't remember if it was Iris or Irene or whatever it was, that hurricane that hit maybe a year or two ago in Florida, we had oh. some people come and visit us here in Atlanta, and one of them stayed with us for a time being. Mm-hmm. Now, granted, he didn't do any work for us from his place or anything like that, but he was our guest, and as far as we were concerned at that t- time and such, he was a member of a family to us. Yeah. Would it be the same kind of thing? Yeah, it would be similar for a different kind of cultural context. Uh, but the idea is is that they were to help maintain one another in these kind of ways. In fact, in Leviticus 25, leading up to the debt slave uh, regulation there, it's about you're supposed to do what you can to help people before they get into a situation of destitution that required debt slavery. So you, tried to, you did as much as you could. You're supposed to do as much as you could to prevent the situation, but sometimes it was not preventable. So when we see how things were going, also, I think one of the things interesting about the Levitical laws compared to other laws is that if a slave ran away, they were to be provided shelter. In this case, the slave was given the benefit of a doubt, weren't they? Yes. This is usually a, a case in which a slave runs away from someone else. Yeah. and Maybe it's because of brutality of some sort. Uh, we just, it's not really, doesn't really say. But in that context, if they uh, run away uh, and they come to you for shelter, uh, you're not responsible 
to send that slave back to the master in ancient Israel. This is different from other cultures in the ancient Near East where returning of runaway slaves was an obligation. Um, and uh, the Bible just did not uh, uh, allow for them to feel any kind of responsibility to send back runaway slaves because apparently the slave ran away from a situation that they didn't want to be in that was not a good situation for them. What could a slave do also if they just wanted to be free? Even if their master wasn't abusive or something like that, we just said, working with this guy is good, but I don't want to be doing this all my life. Could a slave find a way to earn his own freedom? Yeah, there was this thing called redemption from slavery. They could be purchased out of slavery. Now, the problem is this usually had to be done by a family, okay, that is not in slavery, but they have a member of the family that's in slavery. And the, 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 the family could actually purchase that member back out of the slavery context. Mm -hmm. And that was important. The problem was with chattel slaves, they didn't normally have uh, a family that would buy them back out of slavery. Mm -hmm. um, now, they could if it was a sojourner's family and so on. But the fact of the matter is that, that the main concept in the law is that if they were in slavery, the Israelites, they could be purchased out of slavery by the family. Mm -hmm. But also, couldn't a slave in, who was a slave of someone else, obviously, couldn't he own his own property as well and eventually buy his own freedom? Well, that would be more like a tenant farming kind of uh, situation. Those And part of the problem that you're drawing my attention to here mm -hmm. is that sometimes the text that we have, the material that we have, isn't completely clear about all the different categories of what was going on in the culture. What you just described would be more like a tenant farming situation. And in that context, yes, that person would still be, though, an independent person. He wouldn't be an actual slave in the same sense as a debt slave or a chattel slave. Mm -hmm. And I think if I'm remembering correctly, when we get to oh, the stories in Second Samuel about David and Ziba and Mephibosheth and such, mm -hmm. that you actually had servants who owned other servants of their own sometimes, didn't you? Oh, well, yes. Depending on how the, word, the term servant is being used, because mm -hmm. sometimes a person could call them a, self, a servant of the king and not be a slave of the king. Mm -hmm. It became a good term uh, for someone who is devoted to the king and would do what the king asked them to do. Mm -hmm. um, that is how the word gets used even for Christians as servants of the Lord. The term is actually the same both in Old Testament and in New Testament for servants of the Lord. If, it's the same word as, as slave. And that could become a positive concept of, I am honored to be one who serves this Lord or serves this man. And they were positive concepts. The term slave did not always have the negative connotations 
that it has in our culture because of our history in our culture. Mm-hmm. Well, let's compare something also still later on in Deuteronomy, for instance, that in Deuteronomy 2014, when you go and invade a city and such, for women, children, livestock, you can take those as plunder for yourselves. That's in one chapter there. So, I mean, that always seems like, are they capturing women and taking them into what could be slavery as well? But then in the very next chapter, when you go to war against your enemies and you see among the captives a beautiful woman, you can even just take her in to be your wife immediately. And both of these can, I think, get some people back to saying, okay, what are we talking about here? We're talking about getting foreign women, taking them against their will, and being having them brought to your home in the first case, you're taking them in and you're forcing them to be slaves. In the second case, you're taking someone in and you're forcing them to be your wife. Yeah, in um, the context, um, in the context, what it's talking about in chapter 20 mm-hmm. is because the men are fighting in the battle, they're going to be killed. So the women and children are left. So what happens with them? Yeah. This is in chapter 20. Mm-hmm. And uh, you can take them. Um, and part of the reason is this is the kind of situation where now the men are, are gone. And there's not much hope for these people if they're not taken. Uh, and so what happens is that they become part of the population of Israel in the households of Israel mm-hmm. as servants yeah. growing up in that kind of context and living in that kind of context. So this is, again, a refugee kind of situation here. Uh, and that's what's going on in the, in, in, the, in the situation with these particular women in chapter 20. Mm-hmm. In chapter 21, when this uh, uh, woman is desirable to a man in Israel, he can take her for a wife. But he, uh, uh, when he does that, uh, he can bring him in, her into his home, and she shall shave her head and trim her nails, remove her clothes of captivity. She's going to be able to give him some time to mourn the loss of her father and her mother, and then she can be married uh, to the man who wants her as a wife. Mm-hmm. So the point here in this context is this woman has lost her family, and now he can take her as a wife. And she becomes uh, uh, part of his family. Mm-hmm. And that's the result of the situation. And um, uh, she is to remain in his household uh, and therefore be taken care of in that way. Mm-hmm. It sometimes seems to me that when we talk about critics of the Bible, that it's a heads they win, tails we lose kind of thing. Because if you go in and you say, God says, kill everyone, man, woman, child, and such. Well, God's just wicked and evil, and how can we prove that? If you say, kill the men, but, you know, you can spare women and bring them in and make them part of your society. It's like, oh, so now they're just slaves, and they're just sex slaves and things like that. So it seems like, for some people, you can't win either way, can you? Yeah, that's the problem with that approach to the Bible. Uh the utterly destroying all the men, women, and children, that had to do 
with the Canaanites, uh, not with cities outside of the land, mm. but with cities in the land that might corrupt then the Israelites. Mm -hmm. So the situation here is different when you go and you defeat a city or a country outside of the land, then you don't utterly destroy everybody, but you're going to have refugees and you can take them in then, the refugees, as part of your household in ancient Israel, one way or another. Mm -hmm. And the text doesn't cover all the possibilities. No yeah. law can cover yeah. every possibility of what's going to happen. But one of the main things it does cover is that these people can be taken in then as refugees. And sometimes there might be someone that a man sees that, boy, he's really taken with this woman, and he really wants to have her as a wife. And in that case, he takes her in as a wife, according to the plan that we just looked at in Deuteronomy 21. Yeah. And when you, I, I'd like to get on something you said about no part of the law can cover everything. I think a lot of the problems people make, mis mistakes they make, is that the law in the Old Testament was really meant to be didactic, as it were, which for those who aren't sure, it means that these are, are general principles to be laid out. And the judges who enforced the law or to use their wisdom to determine what was the best thing to do in all these situations. Today, if we have a situation going on, we have laws that one single law could be longer than the entire Pentateuch itself, because we want to cover every single possible stipulation and things of that sort. Like sometimes uh, there was a time recently my wife and I were driving, we heard a story about a like a security alarm commercial and such, and about a, do you not want your house to be burglarized during the day? And I said, "Hey, it is impossible to have a burglary during the day. It doesn't <laughs> happen because <laughs> technically, by definition, a burglary happens at night." <laughs> and that's kind of stipulation. If a lawyer today had a client who was being accused of burglary, one of the first things he would do is establish what time it was that it took place. Mm -hmm. Then go on. And do you think that's an important point to make about the nature of the law? Yes, if I'm understanding you correctly, mm -hmm. the problem is that uh, people try to make the law cover things in every detail, Yeah, and they can't. Uh, mm -hmm. Your point about the wisdom of the judges, that's emphasized many times mm -hmm. in the Pentateuch and through the Bible. Mm -hmm. The point is that they take what is laid out in precedents that are found in the law, in the Old Testament law, much like precedents in our legal mm -hmm. system. But new precedents get set all the time because the fact of the matter is you can't cover every possibility. And so you use the ones that are in place to guide you in what to do in this new kind of situation or different kind of situation. And you have to have wisdom to do that. And that's an important principle of law. Yeah, it might be a little bit off from the topic of slavery, per se, what we were talking about, but since you talk about war captives and such, one of the own, most common things that critics of the Old Testament go to is Numbers 31 with the conquest of the Midianites and how... The society is supposed to be killed for what happened, but the, the girls that are virgins, well, you can keep the virgins for yourselves, 
And a lot of people look at that and read it and say, well, there you go. That's sex slavery once again, isn't it? Well, it's not sex slavery. They're not they're not trading on the sex. They're getting wives from these people. So it's a bit different in that regard. Okay, it's not like they're passing these women around. It's it's a situation in where again you have the refugees. These virgins are going to be refugees, right? Mm -hmm. And so so the idea is that um, yes, they're. They're 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 available for you to take as wives. Uh, something else I add on to that is that all of this is directly related to what happened in Numbers twenty five of Baal Peor and such. And if someone was a girl and they were a virgin, they weren't involved in what happened, so they were innocent. And I do yeah. know a skeptic like Valerie Tarico has used the idea that. These girls who have been forced to be undergo a rather embarrassing gynecological exam to see if they were virgins, no, that wouldn't have happened because if they were virgins, it would have been known by, say, clothing they were wearing back then, and such that virgins were dressed differently so they would be identifiable. And really, I think these girls were taken in more to be household help, most of them were probably prepubescent, so they couldn't be wives at that point. Yes, the we're not clear about all the details of the story. Hmm. What we do know is that they could be taken in. They were not part of the corruption that was going on in that account, and so they could be taken in. But we're not told all the details about uh, what age they were or anything like that and so we kind of have to let that alone uh and uh and and take it for what it really says and that they could be taken in well i'd like to remind everyone at this point before we go on further that you're listening to the deeper waters podcast i am your host nick peters and uh we're talking with dr richard Averbeck today about slavery in the ancient world but if you want to help us out with what we're doing around here, gosh, we could use your help. Okay, I'm, I'm just going to be blunt and say it. We could really use your help. Please go to my website, deeperwatersapologetics.com. And there's a link on the side, help support the work of Deeper Waters Christian Ministries. Okay, there's a little link in there. If you click on that, you get taken into the Ministry of Risen Jesus. Is there something wrong with my site that you go to Risen Jesus? No. Those are my in-laws, Mike and Debbie Lacona. And you uh, make your donation. You can get in touch with Mike or Debbie or me or Ari and say, Hey, I made a donation. I want to go to Nick Peters. I want to go to Deeper Waters. And uh, we will get that donation. It will be tax deductible. You can also buy some e-books that I've written. One, actually, that I've written so far, A Creed for the Ages, The Apostles' Creed and Today's Christian. And then others that I've co-written. I recently had a debate with Dan Barker, if you were interested in that. You might like my book that I co-wrote, Groundlets, which is looking at Dan Barker's book, Godlets. There's also uh, Christian Answers of Rich Generation's Questions, a book I did with an atheist on God and natural disasters. And... Uh, some of my personal favorites are two that we've written together on the topic of inerrancy, 
defining inerrancy and contextualizing inerrancy. And um, there's also another way you can support us. We actually have someone who works with us who sells jewelry. Now, Dr. Everbeck, I think you've been married for about 45 years. That's right, yeah. Yep, Mm -hmm. got the math here and such. I guess you got married early in the year, didn't you? Yeah, yeah, I was was 23. (laughs) I mean, early in the year, like January, February, and March. No, it was June 1st. Okay, so it's going to be 45 years this year, or? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, all right. Does your wife like jewelry? Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Guys, nine times out of ten, I ask that question, the answer I get is yes. Wives (laughs) like jewelry. So, if you want to score bonus points with your wives... And there's a simple way. Buy jewelry. I mean, my wife has an allergy to nickel, and she still loves it when I buy her jewelry sometimes. <laughs> so you can buy something. It's done through Premier Jewelers. Our friend Lena Klester does that. And wherever you purchase, 25% of that goes to help deeper waters. So guys, this is a win-win. You can get something very special there for the lady in your life. And you can support our ministry at the exact same time. I mean, if you're going to buy jewelry, why not do it through us that way? And guys, you know the advice I've always given you on this. You can buy something special for that lady in your life to make up for that screw-up that you recently did with her. (laughs) Or you can buy something special for that lady in your life to make up for that screw-up that I know you're going to make with her. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, speaking from experience there, Dr. Applebeck. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and if you can't do any of these things, please uh, go on iTunes and leave a positive review for the Deeper Waters podcast. I really love to see them, guys. It's great to know the impact that that you that this show has for you all and such. Now, um, Dr. Applebeck, do you have an organization or a charity you'd like to see people donate to? Well, the only thing I can really think of here is is where I teach at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Deerfield, Illinois. It's a uh, important ministry. It's worldwide. It's global, and uh, I'm very glad to be associated with this with this institution, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. Do you have a website for that, or no? You can just find that very easily uh, by typing Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. Uh, into the uh, searcher, and you will find it very easily. Okay, so let's go back to the Deuteronomy 21 passage now about taking the woman captive and such. And something that strikes me immediately thinking about this is that this is hardly, for instance, a case of, say, rape, for instance, because as far as I know, most guys wanting to just take a girl and just rape her immediately, they're not going to be willing to wait 30 days. Yes. Yes. That's right. It's this has nothing to do with that. It's it's really a guy legitimately wanting this woman as a wife and she's in a vulnerable situation. That's mm-hmm. true. She's a refugee of war and um but he wants to take her as a wife and this is a way in which she can be provided for as well in a very special relationship with this man. And if anything, it looks like this woman gets special treatment here because it says, if you're not pleased with her, let her go wherever she wishes. Then says, you must not sell her or treat her as a slave uh, because you've dishonored her. Because what 
the guy has already done is he's taken on as a wife, and then he said, well, you know, I don't like you as a wife anymore. Where he's supposed to make sure that her honor is still upheld, isn't he? Yes, yeah, that's very important because, uh, again, you can see that even this woman who could end up in chattel slavery is not treated in a chattel slavery way at all. Mm -hmm. She's treated as a real wife, and if she's not, she must be set completely free. She can go where she wants to go. Mm -hmm. And I, I think one of the things that people can lose sight of, and this is making sure she gets treated well because in that kind of culture, virginity was very highly valued, wasn't it? Yeah, very much so. How come? It was because this this woman then would, well, it's because she was a virgin. The mm. fact of the matter is, this was considered to be a valuable thing. It was part of the culture. And um, a woman who was a, a virgin, again, the bride price that could be brought for a, a, a daughter to the family, the money that goes to the family, it's all part of the sociological economic system of the world and part of the tradition. And it was part of interchange between families, financially and in terms of relationships. Yeah, but what made the virginity so important to Mechman? Was it just a bunch of guys on an ego trip when make sure that the women's first time was with them, or was it something else? The virginity really more had to do just with she's she has not been with another man. I want her as my wife. I want her to be, to know me only, and uh, that was a that was considered to be a high value within the culture. Mm. To do the whole cultural transplant thing and such, they would probably be extremely scandalized by our culture today, wouldn't they? Oh yeah, yeah, they would see it as a very promiscuous society and and as a society that doesn't value the honor of their children and of their families. Mm -hmm. And when we get outside of the Pentateuch, then we start seeing talk about forced labor. In places such even like when the Gibeonites come to Joshua and he makes a treaty with them, the Gibeonites they Israel's not allowed to make to break the treaty that they foolishly made them, but they're allowed to go into forced labor. What exactly was this forced labor? Well, they uh, they would then be ones who carried water for the tabernacle and so on, as it says. Uh, later on in the text, and the point is that they would be uh, they had they had tricked the Israelites into making a covenant with them because they were living within the land. They acted like they were from another land in order to make a treaty, mm -hmm. and the result was they couldn't be uh, destroyed like the inhabitants of the land were supposed to be in order to keep the land pure. Mm -hmm. So what happened was that they. Uh, because they found out then that they were not the people they said they were, but they'd already made a covenant with them. Therefore, they turned them into people who simply were servants of the people of Israel. Mm. Would the forced labor consist of anything different than what the hired slaves and such would be doing with the people? It would be the same kind of thing. They just had these particular uh, responsibilities, but they would remain, again, 
connected to their families uh, as part of their way of life. But they would be responsible to fulfill some of these responsibilities in ancient Israel that especially had to do with the tabernacle and then later the temple and so on. Something I've told people, and maybe I'm incorrect on this, you can tell me that if someone won that, it seemed like members of a covenant got treated differently in some cases, and people who were outside the covenant, aliens and such, for instance, in Leviticus 25, it says you can treat those on the outside ruthlessly if you want to. Could it be even, well, I'll tell people if there was a simple solution for some slaves, they wanted to do this. Become a member of a covenant. Become a part of a community, as it were. And, I mean, would, would that have worked for them? Well, they were still within a larger community uh, that would have control over what happened within that larger community, I suppose. Mm. Uh, um, I do think that they had... that The very nature of the culture was that they, they built households, okay? And that, that the thing that would protected the people, uh, whether in slavery or not in slavery, was the household context uh, that they were in. And in that kind of way, yes, they create bonds, okay, the kind of thing that you're thinking of, but they do it in a household sort of way. And in this way, they could have uh, highly uh, valued positions within the cultures of the ancient Near East, and uh, some of them even running major parts of the family productivity. And the point is that within this, you can't think of it really separately from the household connections. The problem for people who sometimes came into chattel slavery in Israel is they didn't have those household connections to rely on. And so they built them within the situation they were in now. And because that's the way the culture worked, you build in household connections. It, it really is mind-blowing to us anyways, I think, to hear just how central the family was to that unit. And again, I'm keeping, they would be utterly astounded by what they see today, but I mean, how many marriages end up in divorces today, and how many kids come from broken homes and such, they'd probably come to say, what are you all doing to your society? It can't last this way. Yeah, they uh, they would not be very optimistic uh, for our future, simply because of the disintegration and the lack of bond between people. Mm-hmm. And then you make these other kinds of bonds that are not familiar, and they can go sour very quickly. Mm-hmm. And um, so we have a very disintegrated and society that it, it it doesn't connect people, it disconnects people. I started this interview talking about the Civil War slavery and such, and I think there's another important stipulation we need to make that Civil War slavery was based on race entirely. But when you look at the ancient world and what the Israelites did, now, true, they were able to capture Canaanites and such, and taking the slaves. That really wasn't a racial thing, was it? No, no. No, there there were different groups of people around about Israel uh, in different parts of that, the Levant area there on the eastern end of the Mediterranean. 
and uh, it didn't have to do with 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 race. Uh, it had to do with what was going on in terms of survival and war and things like that. Uh, and there were battles. There there was a lot of that, and you can see that in the Bible. And uh, it's a it's a sad thing. The fact of the matter is, there's a lot of of battle, a lot of war, because really of the corruption uh, that we live with as people. When you have people, you have struggle, you have strife, yeah. and so this can happen individually. It can happen familial. It can happen nationally. It, it's just one thing after the other. The point is that in the uh, in the world. Uh, that we live in, we have to deal with this reality. That that's mm-hmm. just the situation that we're in, and we need to realize that the only thing that really uh, holds it together when that falls apart is it, it, we have real problems. Is the familial connections and the connections that are made between the families and things like this. Yeah, I I really think that. A lot of skeptics I really need to read some works on the ancient world. And stuff. One of the things they talk about is how many deaths took place in the ancient world that people are dying left and right and such. And most of them would look and say, well, yeah, death was a reality for us. We saw it every day. Today, we, we keep things all nice and sanitized. Very few of us ever see a dead person except for like on TV or a movie or something like that. And even then it's not real, but for them it was part of their reality every day. Yeah. They they were much more attached to the nitty gritty of life. And the result is that they, they weren't so sanitized to these kinds of things. Um, Even, even in terms of when I grew up on the farm, we, we butchered our own, chickens, our own pigs, our own cows for food and so on. And we're so removed from it today that people hardly know what's going on in terms of the nitty gritty of how they got this chicken to eat for supper. Yeah. And so it's, 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 it's a world that's tried to insulate ourselves from the realities. And then we look at the realities and we, 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 are, we are kind of awed and, and offended by these kinds of things, when in fact, that's the reality of this world. And it's always been so. My dad and I used to watch the sitcom Cheers together. And the time with with one of the ladies, Rebecca, falling all over this cute little pig that had been brought into the bar somehow through Woody, whose parents lived on a farm. And when someone asked, Rebecca, where do you think ham comes from? And she said, Funny shaped cans on aisle six. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. 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 Yeah. Yeah. You know, you'd said that the forced labor would be pretty much what the other Israelites were doing. But when uh, when Samuel warns the people not to get a king, he says, if you get a king, you're going to have to do forced labor. Your family's going to be calling the forced labor and conscripted and such. But mm-hmm. if forced labor was, if that was, if that forced labor was just what was already part of what every slave was doing, what was the big deal about that then? Well, in that case, it's talking about special projects of construction and so on that Solomon, uh, for example, later on did. But it's natural for kings to conscript laborers 
in the ancient world for this project or that project they're doing, or actually for war. Mm-hmm. And uh, so this was a part of the natural regulations of a national entity in in that world. And what Samuel's warning them, uh, the people of, if you get a king like the rest of the of those nations around you, that's the kind of king you're going to get. And you're going to see some real problems. That's why in Deuteronomy uh, 17, it gives regulations for the king that should be had over Israel. And it's not like the other nations. It's not supposed to lord it over the people and so on and so forth. And uh, so it's a different kind of a kingship uh, in ancient Israel that they were allowed to have. And they wanted one just like the other nations. And that's why Samuel was so upset that they were asking for such a king. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because um, if you willingly go and sell yourself into a slavery, that's one thing. But if a king comes and says, you're going to work for me, there's really not much you can do about that, is there? That's, that's right, yeah. It was a conscription kind of thing, like you said. And I think me and the skeptical friends forget is that God does later on many times get after the people for mistreating the servants. One example of this would be in Jeremiah 34, where this proclamation comes that everyone's to free their slaves, and they do that, and then they change their minds to go out and capture them again, and bring them yeah. back in, and God's not too happy about the situation, is he? No, he is very upset. In fact, this is one of the context in which Jeremiah talks, this is why you're going into captivity into Babylon, is because you're doing these kind of things to one another. You're oppressing people. The rich are getting richer, the poor are getting poorer, and you're ending up in a situation that's oppressive. That's exactly what God designed Israel not to be through the law of Moses, and they had become that anyway. And so it was going against the very nature of what God intended this nation to be like. And in Joel 3, for instance, we see slave trading is, in fact, condemned. So anyone who, in the case of a civil war, who was trying to use the Bible to justify slavery, there's no way they could have really justified the slave trading that was going on, could they? No, that, that that's, as you brought it up even earlier on, uh, that's just nothing like what we're talking about in the Bible. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, people, when they read the Bible today, can kind of import that in and impose that on the Bible. That's just not uh, the idea. Now, again, I don't want to, I don't want to give the impression that I think that it, there could not be oppression within this slavery system, yeah. system too. There could be, and sometimes there was, but it was regulated to a, try to eliminate that kind of oppression and that kind of brutality. But again, in corrupt situations and when the people fell away from the Lord and just did whatever they wanted and so on, like the Jeremiah 34 situation, in that kind of place, the the Lord brought judgment upon the people themselves. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure if you've ever read it, but Mark Noe wrote a book several years ago about the Civil War as a theological crisis. I know some about it. There's a great quote of Gap from it here. It says, On the other front, nuanced biblical attacks on American slavery faced rough going precisely because they were nuanced. This position could not simply be read out of any one biblical text. 
it could not be lifted directly from the page. Rather, <clears throat> it needed patient reflection on the entirety of the scriptures. It required expert knowledge of the historical circumstances of ancient Near Eastern and Roman slave systems, as well as of the actually existing conditions of the slave states. And it demanded that sophisticated interpretive practice replace a commonsensically literal approach to the sacred text. In short, this was an argument of elites requiring that the populace defer to its intellectual betters. As such, it contradicted democratic and republican intellectual instincts. In the culture of the United States, as that culture had been constructed by three generations of evangelical Bible believers, the nuanced biblical argument was doomed. Yeah. So, in other words, what he's kind of saying, or those who might be struggling to figure it out, it's kind of like saying that most people in America, and even sadly still this day, have this idea where I should just open up the Bible, and it's the Word of God, and it should be very clear to me. And in this case, it's very interesting. Fundamentalist Christians and fundamentalist atheists have the exact same mindset about how the Bible should be read. It should be clear to us. But Noah's point is that the very best arguments in understanding the Bible aren't just you pick it up, read it immediately, and it's clear, but you really do have to do the work and study the text. Yes, that's um, that's a reality of the <laughs> of the situation. Uh, unfortunately, people aren't willing sometimes to put in the work to really understand what's going on in the text in the first place. So they read it in a very surface kind of way, don't understand that it's meant to be read against a context in which all sorts of things are common cultural background. And the result is we misread it. We read it from our cultural background and we impose on it things that would never have been considered in that cultural context. And we're not part of the historical situation. So what Noel is is saying there is absolutely true that the, the simplistic reading of the text when it uses the word slave, that must be the kind of slave we think of. Well, of course not. That's exactly what it was not. And so the result is that you end up with this misuse of the Bible to reinforce yeah. something that people want to reinforce from outside with no real sense of understanding the Bible in the first place. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm not sure how much you might agree with John Walton on many things and such. He's been on our show several times, but I think... We all have to agree with him on this one, but when he writes his Lost World books, one of the first propositions he has, could be the first proposition everyone is that this is an ancient document we are dealing with. And I think it's one of the cardinal mistakes we make that it is an ancient document and we treat it like it's a modern one. And the gaps that are in there, because there's an assumed background culture, it's a high context society, we fill in our own culture in there, and then we misread the text. Yes, I've had lots of discussions with John Walton about these very things. We have our agreements and our disagreements, but this is one in which we fully agree that uh, the real danger here a lot is imposing our culture today on a text that is written with another culture in view in such a way that it gives regulations in relations and directions and stories in relation to that culture that could be misunderstood in our culture. Mm -hmm. So today, it can be very difficult, though, to have this kind of conversation with someone who's hostile to the Bible. And especially if you're talking to an audience 
there, for instance, like I said, I recently had a debate with Dan Barker, and if slavery had come up there, it's very hard in a 10-minute time frame or so to give a whole background to what's going on yeah. in the ancient world, and a lot of people who might just be getting debates on Facebook and things like that, it's really hard to explain the whole situation entirely, and people like him kind of get the impression that they're defending slavery when they're really not. How can we best approach this topic with people who aren't familiar with the world, whether they be inside the church or critics outside the church? Well, the best place for me, as far as I can tell, for starting a subject is first making it very clear that there's no such thing as the kind of slavery that we have in this country, in our background, in our history. That, that, there was no such thing in the biblical world. That just is not what was going on. Mm-hmm. And that slavery was meant to be a way to manage problems of survival, okay? Mm-hmm. And of providing for labor so that survival could be made a steady process in the world. So there's and and I wouldn't have any problem with admitting, as I have a couple times here, that yes, there could be abuses within the system. Mm-hmm. But the Bible makes yeah. it very clear that's exactly what God is intending not happen within slavery in the ancient Near Eastern context that Israel lived in. And let's face it, with any system that we have there can be abuses. I'm a very pro-marriage guy, but there are a lot of abuses that can take place within marriage. Economically, I am very, very much pro-capitalist, but there is such a thing as crony capitalism and abuses that can take place in capitalism. Perhaps the problem, dare I say it, might not be the system, but it could be the people behind the system. That's, I think, what it really comes down to is the heart of the people that are involved, the heart of the people who have power positions or whatever. Are they using it for themselves? Are they using it for the people who they're trying to represent? The ones that really need the the leadership that they have the opportunity to offer. And so this is we this is a difference between sometimes what we might call a politician versus a statesman and things like this. And so so we have to be very aware that the reality is that God is dealing with rebellious people too, even in the Bible. And what he's doing is seeking to create a situation where the the push is toward just simple caring for one another in a way that helps people live and survive and have relationships. I'm curious if you've uh, read any of the material that Hector Avalos has written on the topic of slavery in the Old Testament. Yes, I have. What do you think about it? Well, it's very slanted in my view. He takes the word, he even comes to a point in that book where he rejects the notion that I could call myself um, a servant of the Lord. Any kind of servant or slavery terminology he takes negatively, automatically. Well, for me, I find it an honor to be the servant of the Lord. Mm-hmm. And uh, and and for him to to take that term and run it so counter to what's intended in the mm-hmm. text and in life, uh, I think is wrong. Now, nevertheless, 
there are some things that he says in that book that are true. Slavery has so often been so abusive and mm -hmm. so on. That's not to be denied, I don't think, legitimately by anybody. The fact of the matter is, though, that's not the kind of slavery that God intended to be dealing with or allowing at all in ancient Israel. Yeah, I, I think people can often forget that in the ancient world, everyone was a servant to someone. Even if you get to the time of the Roman Empire, the emperor was a servant. He was yeah. a servant of the gods. Yes. And that's not a negative thing. It, it, it's it's a unfortunately uh, when when Hector works on these uh, does this in his book, one of the things that he does is is he just turns it so negative that he doesn't realize what he's he doesn't seem to realize what he's done. Mm -hmm. You know, some my wife and I both attend Celebrate Recovery together, and and when you're in one of those meetings, you start by telling your name and usually a little description of what you deal with and such. And some people say, my name is so-and-so, I'm a faithful believer in Jesus Christ. And I choose to go a bit further than that and say, hi, my name's Nick, I'm a, a faithful servant of King Jesus. Yeah. And to me, it's an honorable title. And when I say that, it reminds me, it's just, I'm not just paying lip service to this. And Jesus isn't just my buddy, buddy. I'm not saying other guys are saying that, but I don't want to risk saying that. And Jesus is really my king. He's one I serve that way. Yeah, that's that's the way it is used in the Bible. And that's the way I use it and you use it. And many of us do. And it's very appropriate to the the level of honor and devotion that we that we want to show to the Lord. We do it so imperfectly. And we, we we constantly need to be growing in that, but it's not a growing to a submission that is grudging at all. It's a it's a submission and a devotion that comes out of his love for us first. Yeah, I've uh, I've often compared it to the whole thing about marriage, for instance, that I mean I'm one who I'm very much complementarian in my approach that I do think the husband's supposed to be the head of a household and such, but say if a husband's doing his job properly and leading like that, the wife isn't going to have any complaints whatsoever. She's going to be doing things right. And I say, guys, if you have to whip out Ephesians 5 and think that you're doing what you should be doing, you're not doing it anyway. You shouldn't have to go up there and say, submit, submit, submit. You should be leading by example entirely. Well, in Ephesians 5, actually turns it around, too, in yep. terms of how the man is supposed to love his wife like Christ loves the church. And uh, you create that kind of context, and you have the kind of context in which you can have a really meaningful, deeply meaningful relationship in marriage. Mm -hmm. What would you also say today to someone who's African-American and says, look, I have a hard time with Christianity because it, the Bible talks about slavery and my ancestors were enslaved by people who were Christians. Yes. Um, there's been, you mentioned earlier some of the things that Mark Knoll said. The mm -hmm. the situation, again, of the slavery uh, in this country is not the kind of thing that the Lord is talking about. 
uh, and he, he's not he, he is the Bible should never be, be used to justify that it was used illegitimately um, just on a, a very bad surface reading of the text and taking slave in the Bible to mean the same thing as it meant in early North American uh, history uh, of the of the United States background and 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 frankly the whole thing is is so disconnected from what the Bible is actually talking about that I would hope to be able to help uh, an African-American person to see that it's disconnected and to know that that was never a legitimate justification from the Bible for the kind of slavery that there was in this country. And in fact, whatever kind of slavery is involved in what's in the Bible, it was never intended to have that kind of brutality or anything like that or injustice imposed on people. Your chapter in Behind the Scenes, the Old Testament, is excellent on this topic, but it is also very short. It That's just the nature of a beast, not a criticism, of course. Mm-hmm. But are there any works you could recommend people read to better understand this situation? Well, that's a good question. I hadn't even been, been thinking about that. There's a book by uh, Chirichigno, is his name, Slavery in the Bible, uh, uh, in which he goes through a lot of this uh, discussion. Uh, in the actually, maybe the best place to look for good sources is in the bibliography that I use for the article in behind the scenes, because there is a lot of good work that's been done out there on it. Um, and uh, I'm I have another article, much more extensive article on the debt slavery discussion. Uh, coming out in a another book that should be out sometime this year, where I go through all three sections of the Pentateuch that deal with debt slavery. So this is there's a lot of ongoing work, but I think the maybe the best way to get at some of the good reading would be through the behind the scenes of the Old Testament article that I wrote and the references that I give in in there. Mm-hmm. Well. Yeah. Dr. Averbeck, we've come to the end of our time together here and such. It's been a very fruitful discussion, very interesting one. Um, do you have a blog, a website, an email where people can get in touch with you if they want to find out more? Yes, anybody who would want to write to me probably should just write to my email. I do a lot of email. Um, I don't have a blog that I run or anything like that, but um, my email is raverbeck. Uh, R-A-V-E-R-B-E-C-K at T-I-U, that's for Trinity International University, T-I-U dot E-D-U. And they can write me and I'd be glad to respond. It's, uh, uh, I do a lot of interview, uh, email with people who have read things and heard things and so on from me. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so that's an invitation. Okay. Do you have any final thoughts you'd like to leave for the audience? Oh, um, I, I just think that this is a very important discussion. That's why I spent so much time on it. I deal largely with the Old Testament law overall, the different regulations, the cult, the rituals, and all of that. And um, the reason I've taken on working so much on this one is because it is a hard one for us. Yeah, it is. It's a difficult one. And so it's I, emotionally laden. Very, too. very much. And so 
my goal is to help the church with the Old Testament. And this is one of the ways to help, is to help them understand what's actually going on here and to learn what it does refer to, what it doesn't mean, uh, make the distinctions so that people can understand what God was really after. He's always been after the same thing from everybody. He's wanted people to love him and to love one another. And that does not change in any part of the Bible, and it does not change in life. Well, I'd like to thank you for coming on. Hopefully we'll see you back here again sometime. Thank you very much. I have enjoyed this very much, this discussion with you. And I like my one next week. I'm still working on that, but I have some ideas. But I hope you'll be here for the next episode of the Deeper Waters podcast. Now I'm Nick Peters, and I'm signing off.